Would you pray with me? Lord, may the soil of our hearts be fertile ground in which your word may take root. Speak to us today the word we need to hear, whether it is a word of comfort or conviction, courage or correction. Plant it deep within us and bring it to fruition for the sake of your Son. Amen. So we are picking up where we left off last week after the encounter with the rich man and the discussion with the disciples about camels and needles. We are on our way to Jerusalem. That journey begins now in earnest. And remember that these guys would have walked. Every step of the way would have been a step on foot from Capernaum to Jerusalem. And it's a journey that would have taken a week or more. So Jesus uses the opportunity he has on the way to teach the disciples one more time about what he will face. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him, condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit upon him, and flog him, and kill him. After three days, he will rise again. This is the third time that Jesus has tried to tell the disciples what is waiting for him in Jerusalem. And it is the most explicit. I mean, he lays it out for them in detail. Handed over, condemned, mocked, tortured, killed, and then risen. Jesus is not just on the way to Jerusalem, but on the way to being the Messiah that God sent to show his love for us. The way that will free us from our slavery to sin and death. The rest of our scripture today illustrates two very different responses to this way of Jesus. There's the response of the disciples and then comes the response of blind Bartimaeus. As we hear the word spoken today, ask yourself, how would I respond to Jesus' questions of the disciples? What do I want from Jesus? And am I able to drink from his cup? Be baptized with his baptism. Like I said, this is the third time Jesus has tried to tell the disciples what is waiting for him, and they still don't get it. The first time, remember, Peter rebuked him. The second time, they began to argue about who was the greatest. And and like I said, maybe the third time is the charm, but don't hold your breath. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. 
Well, I think it's safe to say that James and John at the very least don't get it. Jesus has just finished talking about being betrayed, suffering, dying, and they're seeking to do what they're they're asking him to do whatever they ask of him. Now, parents in this group, especially you mothers, have any of your children or grandchildren ever come up to you with a question like that? Here's what my mother would have said. I might have been born at night, but I was not born last night. <laughs> whatever you, we want you to do whatever you, we ask of you. Oh, please. So Jesus responds with a question of his own. Well, what is it you want me to do for you? And this is the crux of today's passage. Probably a better title for this sermon, if I'm honest. And just remember, when he asks, are you able? And they say, oh, yes, we're able. Who is on his left and on his right when he's at Calvary? It's not James and John, but two thieves. Now, before we explore uh, Jesus' answer, let's hear about the reaction of the rest of the disciples to James and John's question. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, Mark doesn't actually make it clear why the other ten were angry at James and John. I mean, is it because they had the temerity to ask such a brazen request of Jesus? Or was it because they beat the rest of them to the punch? Based on Jesus' words, I'd say it's the latter. James and John wanted to sit at the places of honor on either side of Jesus as he judges people, as he sorts them into sheep and goats, to be up front with Jesus, to be important. And the others wouldn't have minded doing that either. All of this is a clear sign. They still don't get it. Jesus asks another question, hoping that they'll get it through their heads. That his way is not about glory and status, but about obedience and service. Are you able, he asked. Now, we just sang that old hymn that asked that very question, are ye able? And I've always loved the answer in that first verse, yea, the sturdy dreamers answered. Dreamers who are still focused on that restored kingdom of David, still dreaming about earthly rule, about status and importance. Well, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus tells them. Can you drink from this cup of suffering or be baptized with the baptism of the cross? You know, when I was a child, I kept asking my parents for a pony. I assured them that there was plenty of room in the backyard of my, our Houston house for one, and that I would take care of it. You can guess what their answer was, can't you? You don't know what you're asking. <laughs> and no, I didn't, and no, I didn't get a pony. James and John assure Jesus that they know what they are asking and they can handle whatever he's talking about. 
Can't you just see Jesus roll his eyes and shrug in uh, defeat? Okay, then, yes, he says, you will drink from my cup and be baptized with my baptism. And tradition says that all of the disciples, with the exception of John, do die for the sake of Jesus. But Jesus says, it's, it's not, I can't do what you want. It's not mine to grant. Jesus then addresses the rest of the disciples and their displeasure at James and John beating them to the punch. And once again, he tries to tell them what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. It's not to be the one at the top of the heap. It's not to be the one with the most wealth. It's not the one whose name is on all the buildings. The greatest in the kingdom of, is the one who serves others, who follows Jesus' way. He never asked for anything for himself when he healed people. He did not try to set up an earthly kingdom, though Satan tried to tempt him to do that. He didn't use his authority or his power for himself. Have you ever heard of William A. Clark? He, became, he began life humbly in a log cabin, but he became a copper magnet. He owned copper mines, railroads, real estates, and was even a U.S. senator for a short time. He built a railroad between Los Angeles and Salt Lake City and needed a place to replenish water and fuel along the way, so he started a town called Las Vegas in Nevada. And if you didn't know, Las Vegas is in Clark County. He's in the same category as Rockefeller or Carnegie, but you've never heard of him, have you? Bill Dedman wrote a book about the Clark family called Empty Mansions, and I heard him speak at an event. And I asked that very question, why have I never heard of Clark? I've heard of Rockefeller, I've heard of Carnegie, I've heard of, of um, all those others. And he thought about it in a minute, he said, probably because unlike the others that you named, Clark wasn't a philanthropist. He wanted to keep it all for himself. Now, you can argue that the better-known rich men like Carnegie or in today's uh, world, Bill and Melinda Gates, still get attention because they put their names on things. Carnegie Libraries, the, Bill, the, the Gates Foundation, which announced just this week that they will give $100 million to coronavirus research. But at least they put their fortune at the service of others. The Clarks never did. And they still died in the end, unsung and unloved. This desire that James and John expressed to Jesus that the other disciples seemed to crave also has been called the drum major instinct. You know who the drum major is with a marching band, right? The one at the front, often dressed more elaborately than the rest of the band, directing the band what to play, keeping time, telling the band when to play. This was the subject of the last sermon Martin Luther King Jr. preached before his assassination, and it was taken from this passage in Mark. And here is how MLK described it. Why would they make such a selfish request? 
But before we condemn them too quickly, let us look calmly and honestly at ourselves, and we will discover that we too have the same basic desires for recognition, for importance. That same desire for attention, that same desire to be first. It's kind of a drum major instinct, a desire to be out front, a desire to lead the parade, a desire to be first. He points out that the drum major instinct can be destructive, pernicious. It leads to boasting, always talking about yourself. It leads to lying about what you've done, who you know. And it leads to pushing other people down in order to pull yourself up, spreading evil lies about others, bullying. It can even be part of the racism that divides people. Listen to Dr. King's interactions with white jailers after he was arrested one time. The other day I was saying, I always try to do a little converting when I'm in jail. When we were in jail in Birmingham the other day, the white wardens and all enjoyed coming around the cell to talk about the race problem. They were showing up where we were so wrong demonstrating, and, and uh, they were showing us where uh, segregation was so right. And uh, they were showing us where uh, intermarriage was so wrong. So I would get to preaching, and we would get to talking calmly because they wanted to talk about it. And then we got down one day to the point, that was the second or third day, to talk about uh, where they lived and how much they were earning. And when those brothers told me what they were earning, I said, now you know what? You ought to be marching with us. <laughs> you just the poor as Negro. And I said, you are put in the position of supporting your oppressor. Because through prejudice and blindness, you fail to see that the same forces that oppress Negroes in American society oppress poor white people. And all you are living on is the satisfaction of your skin being white and the dominating instinct of thinking that you are somebody big because you're white. And you're so poor you can't send your children to school. You ought to be out here marching with every one of us every time we have a mom. And that's the fact. Poor white has been put into this position where through blindness and prejudice, he is forced to support his oppressors. And all the things he has gone for him is the false feeling that he's superior because his skin is what he can hardly eat and make his ends meet week in and week out. The drum major instinct isn't just personally destructive. Dr. King shows that it can infect an entire culture and be used to manipulate others. Jesus has a very different idea about what makes a person great. It isn't being the drum major who leads the parade. It's the lowly guy coming up at the end sweeping up the elephant poop. Let's be honest. You may chuckle, but where would we be without those folks who clean up the messes we leave behind? 
Kevin Kent was telling me about his recent trip to DC and the opportunity he heard to hear General Colin Powell speak. This is a man who knows about greatness and its temptations, but he knows what truly makes a person great. He told the gathered crowd that he makes a point to speak and to listen to those who others might dismiss or not even see. Parking attendants, doormen, clerks, waiters. And I think Jesus would be pleased. There is a different response to the question, what do you want me to do for you? They came to Jericho as he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho. Bartimaeus. Thank you. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet. He cried out even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. So poor old blind Bartimaeus is sitting by the side of the road like he does every day, begging, which is his only way to support himself, when he overhears people saying that Jesus is passing. Now, he doesn't know exactly where Jesus is, so all he can do is shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And Jesus hears him in spite of the crowd's attempts to shut him up. And Jesus calls him, and, and Bartimaeus leaps up and runs to Jesus. Now, I think we, any one of us would have done that too, but don't forget, Bartimaeus is blind. What an act of faith to leap up, leap up to cast off your cloak, which may be the only garment you have to keep you warm, and who knows if you can find it again, and run up to Jesus in the direction of his voice. And then Jesus asked him the same question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? Now it's tempting to think, well, really, Jesus? I mean, isn't it obvious? The man is blind. He wants to see. How often do we make that same mistake? Assuming that we know what someone wants and what is best for the other person because it's so obvious. We can see what they need as plain as the nose on our face. But what if there's something more important that we can't see? What if this man, for instance, had had a daughter who was ill and he'd rather Jesus show her mercy than him? I worked with a woman who had been blind since she was six weeks old. She was a preemie and born in a day before they realized when you put a preemie in an incubator that's flowing with as much oxygen as it is and you don't take their eyes shut, it damages their nerves. She could not see. In fact, the scar tissue had gotten so bad, she had her eyes removed and wore prostheses. But Cindy was pretty amazing. She lived alone. She worked full time. She shopped for herself. She had a dog who was her pet, not a seeing eye dog. She cleaned her house, did her laundry. She was independent and happy. 
I don't know that if Jesus had asked her that question, she would have said, let me see. See, Jesus doesn't assume. He asks, what do you want me to do for you? And in this case, yes, the man wants to see. Let me see again. Again. At one point, he must have had some sight. And restoring his sight restores his life. Jesus' response is a familiar one. Your faith has made you well. Do you see the difference between what the disciples ask and what Bartimaeus asked? James and John wanted glory for themselves. Bartimaeus needed mercy. Wants versus needs. Both the disciples and Bartimaeus are bold enough to ask Jesus for something and something for themselves. You know, every week we record prayer requests which ask often for God's mercy for others. But what about ourselves? What do you want to ask Jesus for for yourself? And and yes, we're pretty good about asking prayers for the person next to us or even for ourselves if there's a procedure. Loretta asked for prayers around her her knee. Um, Christina asked for prayers around her bronchitis today. But what about those other needs in our lives? Harmony in relationship, financial peace, safety from harm. Are those too personal to ask for in worship? Are we afraid we reveal too much about ourselves? When Bartimaeus first cried out to Jesus, the crowd sternly ordered him to be quiet. And you know what he did? He shouted even louder. His need was greater than his embarrassment. Are we able to ask for mercy? Or do we want to focus on status? Asking for mercy means there's something we can't do, something we need help with. And no one including me, wants to admit to weakness. My father would uh, come over to my house when I uh, lived in Houston to help me with things, and, and often he would pull in behind me just as I was coming home, and you know what you do on the way home from work? You stop by the store and grab some groceries, and I would be getting out of the car, and I'd open the trunk, and I'd take my grocery sacks out, and he would rush up saying, let me take those from you, let me take those from you. And I would almost fight him for them. It's like, what do you think I do when you're not here? I didn't ask for that help. But trust me, every time I asked him for help, he was there. 2 a.m. in the morning when I did something really stupid and needed to go to the emergency room, he took me. Did you read the devotion article in the newsletter this week about the little boy in the sandbox with his truck? He came upon a big rock. It was too big for him to move. He was a little guy, and his hands were small, and the rock was heavy, and he tried everything. And he was crying in his frustration when his father came to him and said, What's wrong? And he said, I can't. This truck's, this rock's in the way. I can't get out of the way. He said, his father said, Have you done everything you can to get out? Yes, the boy insisted. And he said, No, you haven't. You haven't asked me if I can help you. And he leaned down, and he picked up the rock, and he moved it for the boy. You know, if our earthly fathers are there to help when we need them, then I believe our heavenly father is also ready with his mercy when we ask.
Are we able to ask for the help we need and to receive it when it's offered? And going back to Jesus' words about what makes a person great, to be there, to be of service, to be the help that God provides for someone else. A few weeks ago, January to be exact, I locked myself out of my office after a Cub Scout meeting, about 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night. And my purse was in there. I couldn't get home. I couldn't unlock my door. I couldn't drive my car. I was stuck. I tried everything to get in. I thought, well, maybe they had forgotten to key, rekey the door on the side, and I, I could find a key to get in there. Somebody uh, had one. No, nothing worked. So I had to call Beth. I had, I needed help. And she was there. The refrain of the hymn of Are You Able? Ask Jesus to remold us in the divine image. A beacon of love. And our closing hymn proclaims that we serve together, united by love. That's the key to the question, are you able? Only with Jesus' help and with you by my side.